So, I am filling in for Danny this week. Uh, my intention is to be here next week, too, so you can plan your vacation time if you need to. Um, uh, next week was actually planned. Um, Danny has been kind enough to put me on the schedule occasionally just so that I can keep the rusty edges off, which is nice. Um, this week, of course, is because of his father's passing. And uh, he wanted me specifically to let you guys know that he appreciates your prayers. Um, he texted me last night. The funeral itself went very well, um, which is good, which is God's grace. And the interment will be Friday at the VA out wherever he's at. So he will not be back, as far as I know, before next weekend. So don't be looking for him, okay? Um, that is that. So as Natalie told the kids, and I saw some of you paying attention, I actually saw a couple of people grab like piece of paper and, and, and write stuff down. I'm impressed. Um, we're going to start a walk through what I consider to be one of the most important foundational theological books ever written. Um, that's going to be John's Gospel. Okay? Um, and it's a walk, not a sprint. I know Natalie said, and, and she texted me that yesterday, that's a lot of verses for you, Bill, because I normally do very few verses at any given time. But this, this morning, we're going to be looking at that prologue. And as we go on this walk through John's gospel, I want us to stop along the way and look at the equivalent, think of it like a nature walk. I want us to look at the flowers and the animals and the birds, the theological scenery as we go through this gospel because there's a lot of really important stuff that John had to say. Uh, we might even take a side path or two because I do that sort of thing. But at the end, when we get all the way through John's gospel, it's my intent, along with John's intent, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. Now, that is not to say that I assume everybody in here is an unbeliever. I don't. Um, generally speaking, if a person comes to a worship service that is designed for believers to worship Jesus, then I believe that they're probably believers. But which of us doesn't need our faith to be refreshed. Anybody? I know I do. And so that is the purpose of this study. Now you've probably read, as a matter of fact, I'm going to do this interactive thing. How many of you have read the Gospel of John? Front to back, end to end. Raise your hand. Okay, quite a few. If you haven't, you will now. <laughs> Because you're going to be exposed to it every time up here pre I'm up here preaching. Um, you might even have some of it memorized. Does anybody have one verse from John memorized? Okay, there's a couple of Awana people that should have their... John 3.16, yes. God is love, okay. So you probably got some verses memorized. And all of that, I want you to not... Put yourself on autopilot while we go through this. You, you know what I'm talking about, right? 
Oh, messages on John's gospel. I've heard this a million times. Click. Now I can sit here and think about what's for lunch. Right? Come on, admit it. You know you do. I do. Right? Look, y'all don't get to see me. I sit back there in the back corner. And this is a great vantage point. I'm, I'm actually kind of upset that Danny's getting his vision corrected because now he'll be able to see me back there. This is a great vantage point. You can see the looks on folks' faces. And you can see exactly when they go from attentively listening to zoned out. Just like that. I want to challenge you to look at John's gospel as though you've never read it before. I want you to go through it, not to find stuff that's new and exciting that nobody's ever thought of before, because Danny talked about that last week. That can be really dangerous. All right, over the last 2,000 years of church history, there's not a whole lot left out there that nobody's thought of before, okay? And if you find something, you might want to stay away from it. But I want you to read this like you would read it with the passion for God's Word that you probably had when you were first saved. You know what I'm talking about, when you just could not get enough of God's Word. You had to hear it. You had to read it. You had to study it. You had to just, you, that it's, it's all absorbing. When you open the Bible, you can't put it down. That's how I want you to think about this study that we're starting on. And this morning, we're starting with the prologue. Um, Alan, do you have the verses on the slides? No? That's good because like a knucklehead this morning, I walked out the door and left my Bible at home too. So let me grab one. Hey, there is one up there. I don't use podiums. So this morning we're going to be reading from John in the NIV. Why? Because it's handy. Um... It is right here. I'm going to ask you all to stand. I'm really happy that Danny has adopted that. That makes it less awkward when I stand up here and ask you to do it. We're going to stand in recognition that this is God's Word, not Bill's Word, not anybody else's Word. This is God's Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him, nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. There came a man who was sent from God. His name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through Him all men might believe. He Himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. 
We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testifies concerning Him. He cries out saying, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me because He was before me. From the fullness of His grace we have all received one blessing after another. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but God, the only, the one and only, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. Thank you. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this word. The word that we have read and the word that it's written about. Father, I ask this morning that you would help the word to sink into our hearts. Father, help us to see the importance of this introduction that we are so familiar with that we can gloss right over. Father, help us to be changed today in Jesus' name. Amen. Now you may be seated. So as Natalie pointed out, the book of John is kind of like Jesus' resume. All right, it's a long resume. It would not pass most hiring standards because it's way more than one or two pages long, right? Uh, but at least he doesn't start with John uh, with Jesus's birth as Matthew and Luke did. But John does set forth the main subject of the book. It is Jesus. Period. It's not John. It's not the disciples. It's not the miracles, it's Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. He also establishes that his desire is for his readers to believe and by believing have life in Jesus' name. That is John's goal. It's important to know what a writer's goal is when you're reading something that's supposed to teach you, right? You ever read any any kind of self-help books or anything like that? Anybody? Maybe one or two. Even Christian self-help books, they count, right? The author always tells you, okay, by the end of this book, you're going to know how to do whatever. Or you're going to know about whatever. And that's what John has done for us. It's obvious by reading this that John is Jewish, that he was familiar with the books of Moses at the very least, because the very opening of the gospel points back to the beginning of the book of Genesis. In the beginning was the Word. At the very beginning of time, there was the Word. Now, I'm going to get a little bit cranial on you. I need you to put your thinking caps on. I know this is tough. It's a Sunday morning. You might not have had enough coffee. You probably had to wake up earlier than you'd like to, but I need you to think about this for a second. In the beginning was the Word. Was is past tense. That means that the Word was there before the beginning. When the beginning happened, the Word was there. The Word was not created at the beginning. And John says the Word was with God. So God was there before the beginning. This this is hard for me to wrap my head around. Don't be afraid to say it's hard to wrap your head around. 
God is eternal without end. The Word is eternal without end. Not only was the Word with God, but the Word was God. Stop it. You know, we, we often think about first century writers being kind of, you know, primitive and backwards. We have yet to wrap our heads around these theological concepts that John wrote. The Word is eternal, God is eternal, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This helps us with the Trinity. This helps us to understand a little bit the Trinity. The Word was with God. So that indicates there's a distinction in the person that was there. Right? The Word was with. Next to. Besides. And the Word was God, which indicates a unity in essence. You know, of all the heresies that have cropped up in the history of the church, um, those focused on our understanding of the triune God are the most plentiful. We've got the heresy that says Jesus was a created being. Right? That's the Arian heresy. And since we're just coming out of Christmas season, who's famous because of the Arian heresy? Anybody? Nicholas. St. Nicholas. He was a real guy, by the way. He was not invented by Coca-Cola. Okay, St. Nicholas was a real guy. He was, he was a, a, a bishop, and, and he is best known for being at the, the council where Arius was presenting his heresy and, and it upset St. Nicholas so much that he popped Arius in the mouth. Literally. We have the heresy that says that Jesus wasn't really human. He was pure spirit, and he just looked human. We have the heresy that says that Jesus wasn't really God. He was just a human being who was blessed. And we have all of these different heresies that attack our understanding of who God is. Why? Raise your hand if you fully understand the Trinity right now. Because I'll step down and you can teach. If Danny were here, he wouldn't have his hand up either. The Trinity is not an easy doctrine for us to get a hold of. It's just not. I understand how one thing can be different from another thing. That makes perfect sense. But at the same time, I can't understand how those two different things can be the same thing. I don't that know. If A equals B, then A cannot not equal B. It, it just doesn't. Brain cells die when I start talking about this. The analogies that we have for the Trinity fail. They all fail. They're beautiful and they're great attempts at us to try to figure out how to explain something that's unexplainable, but they don't work. The egg. You ever heard this one? The egg is, a, is an analogy for the Trinity because you have the egg shell, you have the egg white, and you have the egg yolk. They're, they're one, but they're three. 
Well, yeah, the apples won too. Except an eggshell is not an egg. It's an eggshell. It is made up of calcium and some other compounds that give it its properties. Its essence is eggshell, not egg. An egg yolk is made up of fats and cholesterols. Not a lot of proteins, but there are some. But not a lot of calcium either, so its essence is egg yolk, not egg. The egg white is almost entirely protein, no calcium. Its essence is not egg, it is egg white. The egg doesn't work. They are parts of a whole. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit do not need to join together like the Power Rangers to become God the Godhead. They are God. We have the analogy of ice and water and steam because they're all water. But they're just, they're water in a different state. I cannot take the same teaspoon of water and have it be ice and liquid and steam at the same time. I I can't, because that requires three different temperatures at the same time in the same place. Their essence is the same, but their person is the same. And from that, we have the, the problem of modalism. Those people who think that God the Father is one personality... God the Son is another personality, and God the Holy Spirit is a third personality. And so now we have somebody with disassociative personality disorder as our deity. That doesn't work. Jesus is a person. God the Father is a person. God the Holy Spirit is a person. And in essence, they are God. That's the best I can do. But John's statement here makes it pretty clear that the Word was separate from God in person and yet the same with God in substance. And in case his readers, who were Hebrew predominantly, had any more questions at this point, you know, because we're all the way to verse 2, we got time. If they had any more questions at this point, he pointed out in verse 3 that through the Word, through Him, everything was made. And then he uses that wonderfully confusing statement, without Him nothing was made that was made. I've had to diagram that one before. All things were made through Him and anything that exists was made because of Him. If it weren't for Him, nothing would exist. Were it not for the Word, nothing would be. Life itself was in the Word. Verse 4, in Him was life, and that life was the light of men. Life was in the Word, not just biological life, eternal life. Here's another one of those things. See, John was... Brilliant. Now you're going to say John was inspired by God to write this. Okay? John was a fisherman. 
Even the Pharisees said John was uneducated. Yet God used John to write this. But let me fix some misunderstanding about how God did this. Okay, because God did not show up in John's tent one night and say, okay, John, I want you to get out a piece of paper and I want you to get out a pen and I want you to write exactly what I say. That's not how the inspiration of Scripture happened. God used John's brain to record his experiences. John, uh, God rather used John's intellect. He used John's experiences. He used John's understanding. And the Holy Spirit guided those things so that John could record what we have. John was brilliant because he said here that, that in the Word was life, eternal life, life, all life, creation even. When we refer to the species Homo sapien, right, we also call ourselves human beings. How would you feel if I told you that's inappropriate? We are not human beings. We are human becomings. Ah, there's a distinction. Because a being has a, a solid state. It is. It doesn't change. We, on the other hand, change. You have all changed from the time you walked in the door till now. And you will change more between now and the time that you leave. You are constantly in a state of change. As a child, when we're born, our cells are multiplying faster than they die off until we hit about the age of 25, 26, 27 years old, at which point that balance kind of shifts and we kind of equal out where our cells are dying off and our cells are regenerating at the same speed. And then a couple of years later, normally right around the time where we hit 30 and everything starts to hurt, we realize that the cells are dying off faster than they're multiplying. But the fact of the matter is your cells are changing. Your mind is changing. What you see, what you feel, it all changes all the time. There is only one being in the universe. That is God. He is self-existent. He exists within Himself. He is not created in any way, shape, or form. He is not derivative in any way, shape, or form. His existence does not depend on anything else. Our existence does. We get our existence from God. Let me go back here. John said, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word is God. Self-existent. Self-existent life that is within the Word, that is within God. That self-existence is the reason that we are. We exist because God makes us exist. 
He causes us to exist. If, uh, again, raise your hand if you have heard of deism. Deism. It is the theological stance that was very popular during the end of the 1700s and the beginning of the 1800s, especially in East, uh, Western Europe and the United States. It's also the theological foundation for Islam. Deism says that God, the Creator, the, the Almighty, the All-Powerful One, created the universe and He set everything to spinning and then He went on vacation. And He doesn't interact with His people and He doesn't interact with His world and He doesn't interact with His creation. He doesn't give any thought to us whatsoever. Folks, if God went on vacation for one micro-millisecond everything would cease to exist. That life that's within God, that life that's within the Word, is the reason that we are. Believers and unbelievers alike. We are because He is. And John goes on to say that that life was the light of men. It's the light of creation. It's the light of existence. A little comparison. If light is life, then what is death? Darkness, right? Lack of existence would be darkness. The first thing that God spoke in creation was light. Let there be existence. Let there be life. The light that shines against the lack of existence, against death, against nothingness, that is the light of God. That light shines and the darkness hasn't beat it back. You know, every light that we create fails. Every man-made source of light fails. You make a fire, right? We'll, we'll go back to the olden days. You make a torch, right? You light a torch. What happens? It goes out. The darkness wins. Ben Franklin bottled electricity so we can make a battery-powered torch. Flashlight. What happens? Either the bulb goes out or the batteries die. The darkness wins. What a metaphor. Jesus' light doesn't go out. The reason we still exist is because Jesus is still here. Verse 5. The darkness has not overcome it. God's power has not been overcome. God's power is what keeps us existing. 
In Acts chapter 17, Paul's talking to the Areopagus. Y'all remember this? Paul goes to Greece and he's wandering through the city of Athens and there's a statue here for Aphrodite. There's a statue here for Mars. There's a statue here for Zeus. There's a statue here for Hera. There's a statue for... Pick a God. They got statues for everybody. There's a statue all over the place. They've even got a statue that doesn't have a statue on it. It's just a pedestal and it says to the unknown God because we don't want to leave anybody out. And so when Paul goes to the Areopagus and he's talking to them, he says, I want to introduce you to this unknown God. And he says, even your own philosophers recognize that in him we live and move and have our being. Without the unknown God, Yahweh, unknown to the Greeks, we would cease. All the way up to verse 6. There is hope. I'll get us out of here before noon. May he be. When we hit verse 6, John takes a pause in the discussion about Jesus. He introduces another character in the book, a small character in the book. He says, there came a man who was sent from God. His name was John. That is not the John that wrote the book. It would be so much easier if everybody in the Bible had different names. This is John the baptizer. This is John, Jesus' cousin. John the Baptist, the man that Jesus called the greatest of men. You know that? Matthew chapter 11, verse 11, Jesus called him the greatest of men. John came to bear witness about Jesus, about the light, about the word, so that people would believe, so that people would be prepared. Remember his message? Right? Make the path straight. Prepare the way. Repent. In Matthew chapter 3, John has come out of the wilderness and he's preaching this message and he's standing at the Jordan River and he's calling the nation of Israel to do what? Repent and? Say it louder. Be baptized. Repent and be baptized. Now at that point, this is a different baptism than what we are commanded to. This is a baptism of repentance, a symbolic washing clean of the sins that you are repenting from. Okay? John is a prophet. And so, the religious right and the religious left join together and come down to the river to meet with John. The Pharisees and the Sadducees. The religious right and the religious left. And they come together to meet John. And John says, man, I'm glad to see you guys here. We could really use some good, good holy leadership. No, he calls them names. You brood of vipers, you den of snakes. You're not, you're, you're leading the people astray. You need to be the ones in the front of the line repenting and getting baptized. 
And when they dress him down for his disrespect, he says, oh, okay, me, I just baptized with water. I'm just telling people to, to, to repent and, and dip in the, in the Jordan. That's all I'm doing. But there's one who's coming. And he's going to baptize with fire. Now think about that just for a second. The idea of baptism in the Jordan River is the idea of stepping into the water and being rinsed clean. Okay, even in the in the summertime during the drought when the Jordan is down to a trickle, it, it, pouring it over a person's head, rinsing them clean. Okay, that's fine. Okay, Jesus is going to baptize with fire. Anybody want to sign up? I'm good. I don't know. No, no, no. I'm okay with getting wet. I am not okay with getting immersed in fire. I'll pass, right? I don't want fire poured over my head. Thank you very much. Why would he do that? To purify, to cleanse, to destroy the evil. John's mission was to call the world to prepare for Jesus. The light that gives life to everyone is coming into the world. Now we know on our side of history, 2,000 years later, that Jesus took on flesh. The eternal one took on the temporal. The perfect took on imperfection. The creator of everything came and walked among his creation. And nobody recognized him. Except John. And even John had doubts. He came to his own people, the Hebrews, who had wished for so long for the Messiah to come and deliver them. He went straight to the Jews, and they rejected him repeatedly. They missed him. They missed him because he didn't come to deliver Israel from Rome. He came to deliver his people from a different occupation, the occupation of sin. Now, before you pick on Israel... And for the rest of the book of John, I want you to do this. Every time you pick up and read your Bible, I've, I've said this to some of you before, but I'm going to remind you because I'm sure everybody's forgotten it. Okay? And, and I know very few people have a mirror with them anymore. Okay? Some of you ladies may have one in your purse. Personally, I avoid mirrors like the plague. Okay? But when you're reading your Bible, what I would like for you to do is, is just go ahead and take out your little smartphone because you probably have one. Okay, I want you to figure out how to use the camera that faces you. Okay, the front-facing camera so you can see yourself on the screen. I want you to put it right next to your Bible when you're reading it and turn that camera on. Because we're going to read a lot of stuff about the Jews in John's Gospel. And it's going to be really easy, like it is here, for me to say, how could Israel miss all the signs of who Jesus was. And when I say that, I want to look down and see in the corner of my eye, there's some other meathead 
who missed the signs and prophecies about Jesus until Jesus did something about it. We're no different, folks. The only thing that makes us any different is the fact that Jesus already acted on our behalf. The majority of people in history have rejected Jesus. Boy, we don't like that fact. The majority of people in history have rejected Jesus. When they are presented with the gospel, the majority of people reject it. That includes Americans. That includes Americans who were here as colonists. They came here for religious freedom. Yep, they came here so they could worship their way, but nobody else could worship their way. They came here because they thought they were right, everybody else was wrong. That may have been the only time where there were a group of people who were somewhat in a majority that may have been believers. The majority of people are not. That's a statistical fact. Doesn't that say something about the human condition? Now think about that. Think about this for a second, all right? For three years, we know Jesus' public ministry where he walked around in Jerusalem and Judea and up in Galilee, and he walked around and he called people to turn away from their sins, right? He called people to, to, to move away from their life of sin. Not the way the Pharisees did, because the Pharisees said to move away from your life of sin, you got to follow these rules. Okay? Jesus' message was different. And most of the people who rejected him rejected him because he was not there to deliver them from Roman occupation. We are so comfortable with our own bondage to sin that we're more worried about being under somebody else's authority than we are worried about trying to be righteous. That's the story of the Gospels. That's the story of Israel when Jesus was walking with them. They were more concerned with the Roman occupation than with their own holiness. More concerned with getting the Romans out than they were with being close to God. There's that stupid camera again. Man. It's uncomfortable when we look at ourselves in the mirror, isn't it? Those who have rejected Jesus, if they die in that condition, are lost forever. They don't just cease to exist. Now, here's, here's I'm, I'm probably going to step on some toes. All right, I'm sorry. Let me just say that. I'm not out to hurt anybody's feelings. I'm not out to step on your, your hard-held beliefs. Okay? Um, we have this habit of saying that when somebody goes somebody dies who is not saved, they go to hell, and that is eternal separation from God. Okay? Well, if we think about the fact that our existence depends on God's presence, 
okay, then that would mean that if a person was separated from God, they would cease to exist. Yes? Right? Well, that's, that's not the case. They don't cease to exist. The Bible is very clear that hell is eternal punishment. So they, they aren't eternally separated from God. They are eternally separated from God's goodness and His grace and His mercy and His loving kindness forever. Folks, let me tell you, the sinner in hell would love for God to be vacant for one moment. Because God's presence is there. But without His goodness and His grace and His mercy and His loving kindness, that leaves His holiness, His righteousness, His justice, and His wrath. Those are present in hell. Kind of makes you understand why John's goal is for his readers to know Jesus and through him have eternal life. So now that we're done talking about John the Baptist and we're back to Jesus and the world that that rejected him, John doesn't leave us with no hope saying that those who reject him are just done and, and that's the end of the story. He says... To all who received him, those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. All who do receive Jesus, then and now, who believe in his name, his person, not just believing in his existence, but trusting in him, placing their belief in him, have the right to be called children of God. That is the good news. That's the core of the good news. That's, I mean, that's the best news. Receive Jesus, His life, His death, His resurrection is sufficient to pay your debt of sin. Accede to His position as your Lord and Savior. We're not real good at this part. I I love acceding to Jesus as my Savior. But I'm real sketchy when it comes to His place as my Lord. Because he tells me to do things that my nature doesn't like to do. But that's part of the deal. That's what is supposed to happen as we grow in our Christianity. Believe in Jesus and believe Jesus and you will be children of the Most High God. Those who do this are born of God. You don't inherit it by blood right. This is where I do like what the NIV says here. Born not of natural descent, nor human decision or a husband's will. We do not inherit salvation by genetics. We do not. I I didn't get it from my parents. Okay? I, I I didn't get it just because I came to church. And I most certainly did not get saved because I was smart enough to understand the gospel. You get to be a child of God because it's God's will. That's what John just said. It's not a person's will at all. 
You get to be a child of God because God said so. Period. And now John brings it to a crescendo here. He, he really, he, he starts getting a little bit excited. The Word of God became flesh and He tabernacled among us. He set up His camp among us. He chose to set His own glory aside for a time so He could fulfill the Father's plan. So He could come here and provide redemption for His people. And we, the children of God, we've seen His glory. I love that word glory. One of my favorite, favorite passages in the Old Testament is Isaiah chapter 6. Because this, the, the word picture that is painted by Isaiah is just the most magnificent, the most spectacular, the most straightforward, just unimaginable scene where Isaiah says, In the year that King Uzziah, Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on His throne, and the train of His robe filled the temple with what? Glory. Just the train of His robe filled the temple with glory. Just, just the back end. Remember when, when Moses was up on Mount Sinai? The second time? <laughs> After, after he came down to, to the, the site of Aaron and the golden calf when Aaron turned into a four-year-old, right? Aaron, what did you do? Oh, I threw the gold into the fire and a calf popped out. Okay, yeah, that's how it works. When Moses was on the mountain, he, he said to God, can I see your glory? And God said, no, because nobody can, no, 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 you're, you're a sinner. No, you, if you see my glory, you're, you die. So God said here, in an, in an act of grace, here's what I'm going to do for you. I'm going to cut out this little notch in the rock right here, and I'm going to tuck you into that notch backwards so that all you see is a reflected glory. Just a little, little tiny sliver of reflected light shine. When I pass by, don't peek. And so as he passed by, Moses caught a reflection of the train of his robe. And how did it affect Moses? When he came down the mountain, what happened? His face was glowing and he scared the daylights out of everybody who saw him. They literally ran to their tents. I love that word glory. It speaks of the splendor, the majesty of God, the, the light, the, the cleanness, the holiness. I mean, we know what clean is. Kinda, right? Maybe. I, I really, I'm weird. Y'all know this. Right? If you don't know this, you're going to know this. I'm weird. I look at things that a lot of people just ignore. Right? I work on Keesler. I work in an old building. My building has been around since the late 50s, early 60s. There's a lot of stuff in that building. And as I look at these old facilities, I can't help but think that their, their glory has diminished. 
because of environment, because of people, because of wear and tear, because of, but not just because of that, but because our focus on tending to those things has fallen off. You know, I'm, I'm a relatively young veteran. And I'm sticking to that story, okay? I've been retired for almost 10 years now. And I, I think about the, the airmen who come in today and, you know, they're not taught to, to run the buffer on the floors anymore. We have a contract that does that. And, and they're not made to polish their boots anymore because they wear suede boots instead of patent leather boots. And they're not taught to iron their uniforms because they're washing wear and, and all of these things. And, you know, back in my day, right? And I, I got, thank you, Seth, for sitting up here because you make me feel better. <laughs> back in my day, we had to tend to those things. Back in Seth's day, they tended to those details. And so there's a decay in the fabric of everything and there's a, there's a, a tarnish even to those things that we hold that are clean, right? No matter how clean my dear wife can get a t-shirt in the washing machine, it's not pure. It's flawed. But when we talk about Jesus' glory, when we talk about God's glory, it is the epitome of pure. Can you imagine? The answer is no. We can't. <laughs> I'll help you with that one. No, we can't imagine. The, uh, the just the glory. We have seen, we, the children of God, have seen how splendid, how majestic, how excellent, how preeminent Jesus is. The only Son of the Father, the Son of God, the epitome of grace and the meaning of truth, the one that John the Baptist spoke of when he's talking to his disciples and he says, there's one coming who's so great, I am not even worthy to untie his sandals, which is the task reserved for the lowest of the low members of society. All who believed have received grace, undeserved favor, the undeserved gift of salvation. Moses gave us the law, with the law, we could see how far we didn't reach, right? We were able to see how badly we needed salvation. No man has ever been saved by keeping the law because we can't. Even after we come to Christ in salvation, our sin nature is still so strong that we struggle in keeping the smallest bit of the law. I mean, come on, Jesus Jesus told His disciple, here's, here's one new command that I'm giving to you. Really, it's not a new command. He just summed everything up, right? Love one another. 
Any of you fail loving each other this week? (laughs) One command. Just one. But salvation comes by grace. The grace that gave us the one and only who has seen God face to face because He was there before the beginning. The one who was there when the Father said, let there be light. And even though He came and He walked among us for a time, He is now sitting at the Father's side, ruling His kingdom. Through that Jesus, we can know God. We can have eternal life through Him. Now, i got five minutes before you all start looking daggers at me. And I'm going to see if I can make you do it for a different reason. (laughs) Those of us who have become children of God, who have seen Jesus' glory, just that little bit that we have seen, that we understand, who have the, the benefit of the Holy Spirit dwelling within us, who have the benefit of being able to read and understand God's Word. Because let me tell you, folks, unbelievers can read it too. Most of them have, at least in the United States. And they will use it against us because they don't understand what it says. But those of us who have seen, those of us who have tasted salvation, we know how good it is. I've got to ask the question, what are we doing with it? Is, is this, is this what we're doing right here? Is this the end goal of our salvation? Is this what Jesus had in mind when he called people out of the world? To be saved was for us to gather one day a week, sing a handful of songs, listen to somebody, read a couple of passages and tell us what they mean, and then go out to lunch and completely brain dump everything that we've heard? I know not all of you do that. (laughs) Is that the end of our salvation? Or is there something else we're supposed to do with it? If something else, then what? If only Jesus had told us what He expected of His church. If only He had said something along the lines of, Oh, I don't know. You will be my witnesses... In your hometown, Jerusalem, and the surrounding area, Judea, and the parts of the town that you don't like to go to, Samaria, and then wherever else you happen to go, the uttermost parts of the earth. 
If only he had said something along the lines of, oh, I don't know, all authority in heaven on earth has been given unto me. Kind of makes it sound like we ought to listen to it. As you go, do what? Make sure you attend church when you're out of town. No. Make disciples of all nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, and teaching them all that I have commanded you. It's almost like Jesus wants us to do something with our faith. Now I'm looking through the crowd. All right? I'm going to go out on a limb here and I'm going to say that the median age in this room is probably somewhere in the neighborhood of 56 years old. The average. Okay? I could be wrong on that math. It's a guesstimate. Do you know when you get to stop making disciples of all people? Do you know when, when the retirement age is on being Jesus' witness? Anybody? There you go. And actually, if you have a good minister at your funeral, it can extend beyond that. The responsibility and the privilege to share Jesus with the world does not stop as long as you have breath. It's not easy. It can be very difficult to do. But man, is it worth it to see, to hear a new believer to celebrate with the host of heaven when someone comes to faith. We need to stop warming seats and start filling hearts. I'm going to ask everybody to close their eyes, bow their heads. And I want to encourage you this morning. Encourage you to ask God boldly to open doors for you to share the gospel with somebody. And then give you the obedience to do it. Let's pray.